So for the scripture reading for today, it is found in Matthew 6, verse 10. Your kingdom come, your will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. I believe that the scripture reading for today that Daniel just read for us is pretty familiar to most of us, right? It's about the Lord's Prayer, and it's a part of it where he says, Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Many of us grew up praying that. For those of you who didn't grow up in a church, you, I believe, would have heard of that. So what does it mean when we talk about the kingdom and your will coming? What does it mean for Christians today? Is this just something that we pray and say? Well, Singapore is in the midst of election at the moment. It's in the midst of where various um, parties are walking the grounds and, and seeking for our allegiance to cast the vote to choose who we're going to uh, select as the representative of who we are. You know, it's really interesting. You know, this wasn't a concept that was always around. In fact, long, not just very long before, in a hundred years ago, this was something that you would never have an opportunity to do. You wouldn't get to choose who you serve. You just, this just happened to, upon you. Whoever has the strongest army, has the most mighty power, will be able to rule over you without your choice. But right now, people are going around sharing their views on how they believe Singapore is going to be, this is what they think is important, and that's something that you should choose and select to follow. I don't know who I'm going to choose just yet, and I can't tell you because it's illegal, but next Friday, most Singaporean citizens will be going to the booths and making a selection of who we're going to serve, who we want to serve us, and also who we are giving over our authority to. So what this verse is saying is, your kingdom come, your will be done, is also a choice that Christians make in selecting who they will serve. So going back to the election, what are we actually choosing? First of all, I believe in an election, in a democratic society, we're selecting and choosing where our allegiance go, where our loyalty go, who we believe in and we trust in. It's about their philosophy, about what they are proclaiming. And you can see nowadays it's a little different from past years. You know, past years, you get a lot of people gathering in big crowds, listening to some passionate speeches about the philosophy of those different parties. Right now, it's all online. It's on YouTube. It's on Facebook. It's on the, the, the television channels. They're sharing their philosophy of how they think a country, a nation, a group of people should be governed. And as we listen to the various parties share, what we are actually doing is saying, all right, I agree with that philosophy or that philosophy. I think this philosophy works better for me or that philosophy works better for me. And from that discussion, from that understanding, we make a selection based upon the values they are presenting. Because ultimately, philosophy are empty and useless if it's not governed by certain value that is important to us. When so at the end of the day, when we select whatever party we're choosing to, to, to vote for, we're looking at their value system. What, are they, what do they believe in? And then we're looking into ourselves and looking at ourselves and saying, what do I believe in? And more often than not, if that value system of the party aligns with my value system, we make a very important choice. You know what is that? We submit and hand over the authority to make decision. What we're saying when we cast our vote is that, okay, I trust your philosophy. I trust your value. So now I'm going to hand over the power I have in my hands over to you to make decisions which I think will be beneficial 
to me and my livelihood and those that I love. That's ultimately what we're doing in an election, that people are presenting their value, presenting their philosophy, presenting their worldview of how human beings should be, should be governed, and they're like, I believe that, I accept that, and when I, I cast my vote, I'm saying, I adopt that. So now, take over the authority. You now make decisions for my life. It's something that most of us who grew up in a democratic society is used to. It's something that we're like, yeah, that's exactly what I do. But it's interesting. When you think about in the ancient world, the time of Jesus, you know, you think about Caesar Augustus. When at that point in time, when they want to rule over a certain group of people, they come in the mighty force of their army. They conquer the land and they use violence to say, well, this is what, what I believe it should be mine. My army has decided to take over this land. You belong to me. You belong to me. The choice is not made by the people, but by the king or the self-proclaimed ruler to say, now you, I am in charge of you. You follow my rules. And if you don't, I'm going to send violence upon you. I'm going to send punishment upon you. And so that's how it's going to be managed. And if you refuse, you may even end up losing your life. And it is within that context that we come to a very different story. A story that in the midst of all that violence and power and, 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 and forcing uh, my authority over you instead of you choosing to give it over to me comes the story of Jesus. So I'd like to invite you to turn your scripture with me to Matthew chapter 4, verse 23. Matthew chapter 4, verse 23, right after Jesus' birth is described in the midst of violence, mind you, uh, all the babies were killed because they were trying to kill Jesus because they heard the, the prophecy that Jesus is going to be the new king. And in this, in this midst that Jesus, after he started his ministry, after he's called his first disciple, verse 23 of chapter 4 of Matthew tells us about what Jesus is doing. So if you turn your scripture to Matthew 4, verse 23, I'm going to read it from the ESV version. And it says, And he, Jesus, went throughout all Galilee, teaching in the synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction among the people. So he described Jesus calling his disciple. He's starting to proclaim this message about the kingdom. And well, the word gospel is actually not a Christian word. In fact, the word gospel was a word borrowed from the then politics. It's about you know, when they go to war and then when an army goes to war, it's usually somewhere off. They, they, they fight differently back then. They, they try not to harm the civilians because it doesn't make sense if you, if you fight a war and you destroy all the resources you're trying to conquer. So they choose a piece of land, a, a, will, a, a flat piece of land where there's nothing there and the two armies fight each other and the winning party owns the assets that comes along with that war. And so what happens is the army will go somewhere to fight pretty much far from the main city, and then a messenger will run back or on a horseback come back to the main city where the ruler usually is, is situated at, and the news that he brings of victory is called the good news. Or in the word that in the scripture is called the gospel. And so the gospel is the bring of forth of the good news of the victory of the army fighting in the distance and now Whoever now this city now belongs to is a consequence, a result of that battle. 
That's the gospel. And so this word is not unfamiliar to the people in Jesus' time. And so it's heavily injected, infused with political mindset and, and, and an air when Jesus comes and is described that's proclaiming the gospel, the good news of the victory of the battle of the kingdom. And so when Jesus presents himself to most people of that time, the Jews, they were expecting a political uh, ruler supposed to come. But then Jesus comes differently. In chapter 423, he says, he proclaims this, and if you read uh, further on, uh, before actually, he already started to gather a following. You must understand that the Jewish people have been waiting for this prophesied king their entire lives. They've been waiting ever since they've lost their autonomy, ever since the Roman Empire have conquered them. You must know that deep down in the memories of these people, was that they were once slaves in Egypt. Before that, they were free nomads, but then they gathered together due to the famine. The story in Genesis of Joseph and his brothers, Jacob and, and his sons, all came together to Egypt, and many years later, they became slaves. And so that's always at the back of their mind, the slavery. And they were released. They were released in Exodus, the story of Moses releasing. God came and released them. And they were traveling the wilderness and finally they established their own kingdom. And at the height of Hezekiah, they were a mighty kingdom. And back of their mind, I have no doubt that the Jewish people think, now we're going to be Egypt. Now we're going to be the ruling empire. Because of that disobedience, God took that away. Because from the very get-go in Genesis, the kingdom belonged to God. In Genesis 1, he says, now you take over and take care of this kingdom on my behalf. It may be a little far-stretched for all of us who, are not, who don't live in that time. But today, there's an illustration that I'd like to share with you that may make sense to you. I don't know how, uh, how many of you have worked part-time. Um, I've worked part-time in a, in a restaurant, in a cafe, um, in an Italian restaurant, in a, as, a, as, a, as a sous chef. You know, what's happened there is that there's always... The boss, like, like, like the one who owns the business, and then there is the branch manager. And if you are not so fortunate, you would have worked for a branch manager that think he's the boss. He runs that branch as though it belongs to him. And the thing is, like, he'll, he'll, he'll make you do things as though the business is his, and he'll make decisions, or he'll treat you in a way as though you're slaves. Right, not real story, but I'm just sharing, I don't know. Like, they'll make you, like, do things that he thinks he's the boss. Imagine, imagine, right? The boss tells his branch manager, while you take care of this branch, I'll come back monthly to, to, to collect the, the money we've made, and then uh, just check out what you've been doing. Imagine. The boss comes back, and this branch manager for the whole month have been like acting like the boss. And the boss comes and says, all right, hey, dude, show me the report. And the branch manager, because he's so used to it, tells the boss, hey, why am I reporting to you? Who are you? And the boss goes, I, I own this business? And the branch manager is like, no, I am the ruler here. So that's what happened. You know, God gave Adam humanity the right to govern, take care of the land, but ultimately the land did not belong to humanity. 
But as the time went, as, as after the rebellion, after chapter 3, you know, the sinning, people start to think that they own this kingdom. They own this land, forgetting they're just branch manager. And so what happened, the Israelites, after they selected a, a human as their earthly king, they decided that, yeah, the kingdom belongs to me. We are successful because of what I have done, and all this glory was mine and mine alone. And so God had to take that away, and they went back into exile. Babylonians came, and then the, 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 uh, pe- pe- what? <laughs> the people came one after another, and then the, the, the Persians, sorry, I was saying kind of found the word Persian. The Persians came, and then the Greeks came, and then the Romans came, and they just took over the land, and they were enslaved. And by the time of the Roman Empire, the, the things changed even more, because now he's proclaiming more so that he is God. He's not only the political king, but he's also the spiritual God. And this, you know, you can feel the Jews go, what is going on? In this climate, Jesus comes proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom. He proclaims a few things. And you can read. That's what we're talking about. I'm introducing the series that we're going to embark on for the rest of probably the year. We're going to talk about what is this kingdom. As Christians, we pray your kingdom come. But do we truly understand what the scripture says about the kingdom? And so as in, in the intro- introduction, chapter 4, verse 23, launches this kingdom of God. And it's interesting, Jesus doesn't come with force, violence, or power. He comes teaching, healing, ministering to the needy. He exemplifies what the kingdom of God actually means. It's not something that you take over by force, but it's something you convince people to make a choice for. And part of this philosophy, this value system of this kingdom, is that Jesus comes to heal every sick person, every disease, and to relieve affliction. It is a weird mindset. And he goes on in the next few chapters to talk about that in his kingdom, you're supposed to love your enemies. You know, for us, it's it's tough enough to understand it in our context, but imagine in their context, the enemy in their mind was of the devil. The enemy was somebody who was forcefully take over their homeland. And now Jesus says, love them. Jesus says, feed the poor. Jesus says, take care of the needy. Take care of the, the widow, the homeless. And they were like, what is he talking about? Shouldn't we use the methods of the world and fight back in violence to regain our kingdom? And Jesus says, no. My battle is not fought physically. My battle is fought spiritually. And I'm teaching what I believe my kingdom is supposed to be. You listen to it, and then you you decide whether you want to adopt it. And so chapter 5, chapter 6, chapter 7 of Matthew goes on with Jesus. What does he do? He teaches about this kingdom. He doesn't rule and force people to believe. He teaches about the ways of the kingdom, which is actually not new, but is based upon the original design in Genesis chapter 1 and chapter 2. He says, that was how I designed humanity to be. That's why you react against violence, because you feel it's so unnatural. That's why you react against death, because death is not supposed to be. That's why we react against pain, because pain was not what was intended for humanity. So my kingdom does not advocate for those things. My kingdom advocates for love, service. In fact, he goes, the greatest in my kingdom will be the least. They will be serving one another, ministering to one another, 
giving up and sacrificing their own need for another. That's his kingdom. And then he goes on in chapter 8 and chapter 9 to exemplify living out as a citizen of this new kingdom. Let's go to chapter 9, verse 35, and how Jesus closes this whole part of talking about his kingdom before he is finally crowned as the king in a most non-human expected way. In Matthew chapter 9, verse 35, to end this whole arc, it's the same verse, same passage that is brought out. And that tells us this one whole unit in, Jesus, in which Jesus wants to introduce to us. It says, And Jesus went throughout all the cities and villages, teaching in the synagogue, same thing, and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom, same words, and healing every disease and every affliction. Jesus comes to show us his kingdom. Jesus comes to exemplify what his kingdom is about. He's not trying to force us, coerce Christians to be a part of that kingdom. You know what Jesus is doing? He's teaching us what he believes in, and he's asking all Christians to make a choice to cast a vote of who you want as your king. You know, in ancient kingdom, or in all kingdoms, there's three parts to it. Every kingdom is made out of a king, people, and the reign, which is like the rules that governs, the philosophy that governs this kingdom. In the ancient world, the Roman kingdom, the king was Caesar, right? The Caesar. And the people was the then empire that was ruled, and the, the extent was the Roman empire with the Roman laws and rules and regulation. It was accomplished by situating and placing his army all through his empire to make sure people followed the rules, enforced through violence. In our modern kingdom, it's a little bit different. In today's society, you know who, who owns the kingdom? Who's the king of the kingdom? Self. And who do you govern? Yourself. And your reign of your, your governing is actually your entire life. We've replaced how God has intended for us to live by replacing God's position as the king and placing ourselves as the king. And you know what result is no different from the Caesar of the Roman Empire. What result in replacing God's position in our life is that we end up pursuing things that doesn't satisfy, it doesn't really meet our needs, and it doesn't align with our inner soul. And ultimately, it results in bad, unfortunate consequences. It results in us pursuing something and feeling at a, at a point that we think we've got it, you reach that point and go like, this is meaningless. As King Solomon said, he pursued, he thought he was king and he pursued the things that he wanted and he got the things he wanted. All the things that, that in human terms that he could have had. By the end, he says, vanity, vanity. And you know, you're saying, James, you're being very pessimistic. You know, I've never had all those things that King Solomon had, but for someone who had, had all those things that people today, I still see people pursuing and having gotten it, to say that, it means a lot. What are you pursuing? Even though you have made your proclamation that you are a follower of Jesus, are you allowing him to be king? Are you really praying that your kingdom come, your will be done on earth, the first place on earth that his will needs to be done is in your life, as it is in heaven. In heaven, only one person rules. 
that's God. But I look at myself, and I honestly tell you that in my kingdom, my life, there's two kings fighting. Even though I know I will lose, but it's James, not King James of England, but James Tom, fighting against God for that throne in my heart. And so the God's kingdom is definitely summarized in this. Jesus saying, and we'll dwell into this in more detail in the coming weeks, Jesus is saying that I want to be the king, not how you've experienced kings as humans so far. I want to be the king that rules differently, rules according to the original design, and I want to rule all of us, all followers of Jesus in this kingdom. And you know how far does his kingdom stretch? The scripture is clear. His kingdom is not located in a, a local place like the other gods of the ancient scripture. His kingdom is the whole world. But the whole world is not just a physical location we're located in. It's our hearts. That's the world He wants to rule. And so with that, He left us two ordinances for us to, to participate in in order to say that we belong to this kingdom of God. The first ordinance for those of us who want to be a citizen of this kingdom of God is baptism. The scripture is clear. There's no other way you can become a citizen unless you're baptized and accept the citizenship. It makes sense, right? Like, if you join to become a citizen of Singapore, there's a ceremony you have to attend. It's called a citizenship ceremony. It's where you go, all right, maybe I'm from another kingdom or another country, not kingdom, but now I'm choosing for this to be my country, and when I accept this country, I have to accept, right? I know Daniel King went through that. Like, this is now my country. I accept the rules, the regulation, uh, how things work. And because of the acceptance, I get to do one thing that non-citizens don't get to do. Next Friday, I get to vote. I get to choose who I believe in, whose value system I adopt, and who I'm submitting my authority over to. And so for the kingdom of God, it's the same. You know, God doesn't coerce or force us, but He presents what He is about, and He asks us to choose. And if you choose to follow Jesus, you can't just sit on the fence. You know, like even in Singapore, the fact is, even if you're just a permanent resident of any country, in fact, United States, Australia, United Kingdom, you are not allowed to vote because you've not cast your full loyalty. And some of us have been sitting on the fence, not sure what to do. But then when you want to fully become a citizen of the kingdom of God, there's only one option. There's no permanent resident status in the kingdom of God. There's only citizen and non-citizen. And to be a citizen, you participate in the first ordinance, which is called baptism. And so if you are interested, and you've, you've been thinking about it for a long time, and Pastor James, I've been wanting to get baptized, but I don't know how it's done, have a chat with me, all right? In fact, very soon after, I'm going to make a short video on our Facebook page and on our, on our website to explain what it's about and how it's done in ASDAQ, right? That's the first ordinance. And the second ordinance is what we're going to do today. It's called communion. That this only two ordinances that was left behind by God for His church. There's nothing else, nothing more than that. The second communion, communion is for people who have accepted Jesus into their life, who said that I am now a citizen of this kingdom, and now I commemorate that. You know what's the equivalent, what's similar to that? Is the 9th of August, National Day. I don't know about you, but recently I've been hearing just fighter jet, just flying all around. I know it increases during election, but I've just been hearing them rehearsing and rehearsing. And every year, you know what is communion like? It's like that moment during the National Day Parade where it invites all the Singaporeans to stand up and does what? 
recites the pledge. You know, that was drilled into us when I was young. I don't know whether the kids do it nowadays. But every single morning while I was attending school, like you have to go for the morning parade, you have to sing the national anthem, and then you have to recite the pledge. I don't know whether it's still mandatory today, but that reciting of the pledge and sing of the national anthem is like communion. It's proclaiming, I am a citizen of Singapore. I am a part of this kingdom. And for, for Christians, the pledge, the national day, the recitation is communion. Whenever, Paul says, whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the coming of the king. So today, it is still different from our usual one. We're still going to do this online. So for those of you who need to go grab the elements, the bread and the cup, I'm going to give you a few moments to run to your kitchen or get it ready to, and invite you to select one person in the house to represent others. Uh, you know, keep it hygiene, wear gloves or wash your hands to be the one that breaks the bread. Or you've already broken, like for us here, everyone's bread is already pre-broken. I'm not touching their bread. They're not touching my bread, right? It's, it's clean, right? For you at home, go now and grab your bread as we now, we're going to go into the time for those of us who, those of us who follow in the ordinance of Jesus, in, tr- proclaiming ourselves to be a part of His kingdom, we're going to celebrate the communion together online. So go grab your bread, grab your cup. Yeah, guys, Greg. <laughs> I'll give a little bit more time. Some of you, are, you for some of you, your kitchen is a bit further. <laughs> so to grab your stuff, get ready, set up everybody. And for those who are ready, I invite you to bow your heads as we pray together. Heavenly Father, we come before you at this time to proclaim our allegiance and our submission to your kingdom. As we, part- as we participate in the communion, we know that it doesn't bring us any salvific benefits, but it reminds us about who our Lord, our King is. And God, as we partake of it, remind us of our, who we are. We're not just sinners but we're redeemed. Lord, by your death, we're no longer called sinners, but we're called your child. And Lord, we're looking forward when you come back again to end all this violence and all this, this unhappiness, this, this, all this chaos in this world. But until then, Lord, we want to live because you said in your scripture, your kingdom has come. It starts today, it starts now, and as we eat this bread and drink this cup, we proclaim your kingdom until the day it comes. So, for those of you who are watching this, I'm going to break the bread uh, symbolically as Jesus did when he sat in the upper room. He took the bread, and I have comment that my bread is always very big. Uh, it's not too big this time. You know. He broke the bread. Because what it symbolizes is not just that we're eating of the bread, but traditionally the bread is shared among everybody. But now it's COVID-19, so we're not going to do that. The same piece of bread is passed among all who are at the table. Because all of us partake not of a different God, 
not of a different Jesus, but the same Jesus who died for all of us. And the breaking of his bread signifies his death for us on the cross. And the cup represents his blood that flowed for all of us on the cross. That his blood symbolizes that our sin has been washed. That we're not called sinners anymore because we are part of his kingdom. We're not citizens that are called slaves, but we're, called, we're citizens that actually called the children of God. And so for those of you who are part part participating in this communion, as you partake of it, remind yourself that you're not a sinner anymore, but you're citizens of the kingdom, proclaiming His coming whenever you gather to celebrate. May we partake and we say the silent prayer to ourselves at the end of it.